You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll be reading today from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Ryan. I'm really excited you've joined us, joined us this evening. We are coming to the end, getting close to the, the tail end of our, our series in Malachi. Um, I, it's been a wonderful study for me um, as, I've, as I've dove in. I've, I've seen a bunch of different things that I hadn't seen before, and the Lord is, is doing some things I think are pretty fun. So I hope, I hope that as you have been here and listening and, and, and consuming sermons that some of that's happening. I hope as you read Malachi, um, maybe the, the upfront nature kind of shakes you a little bit. It's like, oh, oh, but it's good. It's, it's, it's all good in the economy of what God is doing. Hey, my junior year in college... Um, no, senior year in college. Senior year in college. Um, final year ever um, playing organized football. I started playing when I was eight. Played all the way through college. By the end, man, I was really ready to be done. One of the reasons for that was that I was hurt a lot and all, all over. Like it was, it was really a joke coming down the stretch. The seventh game of my senior year, to illustrate this point, we are playing a, a school that's like maybe 15 minutes down the road, it's a pretty close game, third quarter. I, I play played defense, played linebacker. So there's a sequence that happens. I'm going to make a tackle. That's what, that's what, that's what linebackers do, if, if, you, if you don't know. I'm going to make a tackle, and so I've, I've got a clear lane, get rid of a blocker, and I'm getting ready to wrap this running back up. And all of a sudden, one of my teammates, who was a defensive end, as I'm going in, hits me on the side of my head, not with his fist, but with the crown of his helmet, and I am out. 
A couple days later, when we're looking at film, it looked like I was dead on the, fl- on the floor. Like I dropped with no hesitation. I hit the ground and I was flat out for probably five minutes. Out. So my memory post that is pretty hazy, as you might expect. So the first thing I remember, it was about 45 minutes later, and I kind of woke up on the sideline doing like one of these, trying to understand... I had chipped like seven teeth in my mouth, so I was like cutting my tongue with my teeth. But I was really concerned like, where, about where my helmet was. Where is my helmet? Like I understood, like, okay, I'm, I'm on the sideline. I see my teammates. I know that the game is still happening. But like, where is my helmet? Where is my helmet? So I like start asking my teammates. I'm like, hey, where is my helmet? I lost my helmet. This has never happened. I've been playing this game for 15 years. I've never lost my helmet before. They're like, Ryan, they took your helmet. Why? Dude, you got knocked out. Oh. If you've ever been concussed, you know that like you forget things. So like in the next sequence, I start trying to find other teammates. My helmet. They're like, Ryan, you, you, you got knocked out. They took your helmet. Forgot again. And so then I keep walking around, and finally I go to my coach, who's my, my position coach and our defensive coordinator. I'm like, Coach, where is my helmet? I've got to go on the field. He said, Ryan, you got knocked dead. That's exactly what he said. He said, you got knocked dead. You have a concussion. Go sit down. And I was just like, oh. For whatever reason... The repetition in hearing the same thing over and over and over again, it finally clicked. And in my concussed brain, it, it like made sense, and I literally went and sat down for the rest of the game. Sometimes, sin acts like a concussion. Like, if you ever had a concussion before, then you, you know, especially if it's a bad one, like, you don't know where you are. Things can be blurry, fuzzy, kind of have like brain fog for a while, perhaps. In in, in a spiritual sense, sin does this to us. We walk around in a state of concussion all the time, all the time. So one one of the challenges that we have as we move through Malachi, maybe even as Nikki was reading the text, you started feeling like, man, this feels like repetitive, It feels like he's talking about the same things, maybe over and over again. And so, but but I want to suggest to you that the reason, one of the reasons that Malachi is doing this is because he understands that sin causes us to see things in a blurry way. Sin causes confusion. I don't understand what's happening around me. Like when I had my concussion that, on that, in that game because of what sin has done to me. But every once in a while, repetition happens and the Holy Spirit speaks and I'm able to see with clarity what's actually happening. So today in Malachi, he returns to the idea of Israel's begrudging sacrifices as, as evidence that their hearts were, were rotting, that they had an underlying problem. Their hearts were cold, bored, apathetic, indifferent to the things of God. The repetition in Malachi, I want to suggest to you, gives insight into your heart, into our hearts. Think about your life. Maybe people around you, friends, family, folks in the MC with whom you're close. 
our hearts reveal themselves in many different ways. In other words, the, the coldness of my heart might look like apathy to the Lord, it might look like apathy to the church. The indifference in, in your heart might look like, uh, it might affect how you pray. Like, do you pray? And, and, and does the, an apathetic heart affect that? Well, it certainly does. Or maybe it, it manifests itself in how you treat people around you, maybe your spouse or your kids. Maybe it manifests itself in how you manage your money, and we'll get to that in the text later. The point is that all kinds of issues that we have point back to the heart that is cold, bored, angry, bitter, hard. And in a sense, the, the repetition that Malachi is, is giving us here is inviting you to think specifically about your own heart. You see, generalities here are not particularly helpful. Like, you could generally understand the way your heart works and not know anything about how it actually works. Got to be specific. So in the text today, we find another example of Malachi diving deep on a particular piece of, of evidence, a problem in Israel that actually revealed a deeper, more profound problem in the community. So with that said, I want you to see two points from our text this evening. Two points. First, God's patience. God's patience. And then second, God's generosity. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you for your love for sinners like us. God, thank you that you have promised to meet with us here. That your presence, Holy Spirit of God, is here with us, Lord, we, I invite you here into this place that you would come and that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes and unlock our ears, that as we look to your word, we might find wonders in it, wonders that change us, God. We need you to come in power and change us, Lord. We invite you to come and to do that work this evening. Amen. God's patience. If you have your Bible, look with me at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Here's an example of how, of, of how important it is for you to understand what Malachi is saying in specific reference to God. That was a really clunky sentence. Really, really clunky. This is an example in verse 6 of Malachi saying to you, hey, think specifically about what is said here about God. Think specifically about what the text says about God. Look back with me at verse 6. It says this, For I, the Lord... Do not change. Do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God doesn't change being the idea. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, He's the same today, and He's the same forever. Malachi is pointing to this original community and reminding them of the faithfulness of God, reminding them perhaps of God in the garden in Genesis 3.15, just moments after the fall, moments after sin enters into the world, what does God say to Adam and Eve? He says, hey, one day there will be a seed, 
There will be a Savior, and He will come, and He will fix what just happened. He will make all these wrongs right. He will crush the, the, the enemy's, the, ser- the serpent's head. Maybe Malachi is trying to remind him of that. Maybe he's trying to remind him of this same God in Genesis 12 who comes to Abraham and who says, Hey, through you and your family, I'm going to bless the world. Or maybe he's, he's thinking about individual people he wants to remind them of. Maybe people like Judah, who's an absolute train wreck of a person, and God chose to bring about Jesus through him. Maybe he's reminding them of these individual instances of the faithfulness of God, and even perhaps a, <clears throat> a slight nuance of that, the patience of God. God is so patient with his people. There are too many examples for us to, to do a deep dive on, on, on all of them that illustrate the, the patience of God. But since in verse 6, kind of in passing, he mentions Jacob, we can think about Jacob together for a minute. Sometimes we have a tendency of sort of whitewashing some of the, quote, heroes that we find in the Scripture. Let's not do that, okay? Jacob was a liar. He was manipulative. He was deceptive. He was a schemer. He manipulated Esau, his brother. He lied to Isaac, his father. He cheated his uncle Laban. He neglected his first wife, Leah, because the text says he loved his second wife, Rachel, who was Leah's sister, more. Jacob is not a good guy. He is not a hero. He is not a person that you would want to spend time with. Jacob was born in Genesis 25, and over the course of about a hundred years, he lives like this. About a hundred years. And in Genesis 32, there's this really strange text where he's kind of by a fire. He's waiting for Esau to come. He's just come back into the promised land. And God wrestles with him. It's really weird. Genesis 32. At the end of this encounter, God dislocates Jacob's hip. He gives him a new name, names him Israel, indicating that this is a life-shifting event in his life. It's, it, it's, this is a watershed moment for Jacob. Many believe this is actually where Jacob comes to know the Lord, to love and trust him. Now remember that Jacob is Abraham's grandson. God's promises to Abraham go through Jacob. He is one of the foundational figures in the Old Testament. And God waits patiently for him for a hundred years. Not because he's good. We've just just looked at that. And not because he's a Bible character. Sometimes you, you might think, but yeah, but he's in the Bible, so God treats him differently than he treats me. No, the point is that God is patient with his people because he fulfills his promises. Because he fulfills his promises, God is patient with you like he is patient with Jacob. Since the Lord doesn't change, that's what Malachi said. The Lord doesn't change. In your life, you can count on his patience. He's not going to get impatient with you. If he was patient with Jacob, and Malachi tells us that the Lord doesn't change, he's patient with you. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't know if you've considered in your life that God is patient with you. Patient with you? Sometimes we, I mean, we talk a lot about the love of God here at Mercy View, which is incredibly important, like maybe the most important. But from, as a slight nuance of that, to, to help you spe- think specifically, have you considered God's 
patience for you as a demonstration of his love for you. He's patient. But how do you know he's patient? How, 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 like, how does, how does that work? Well, look with me at verse 7 again. He says this. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Remember where we are in the overarching story of the Bible. Malachi writing to a post-exilic community that is coming to grips with the reality that the exile didn't fix their hearts. They've got the same problems that their fathers had. That's what he says in the text right here, makes it explicit. Like your fathers, you don't obey me. This is God speaking to them. But don't think that that issue somehow stopped in the post-exilic community. We don't want to be guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We look at people in the past and go, oh, they were so simple. They, 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 were, they were dumb. They were, they, it was agrarian. Look at us. We live in this post-everything culture. No. No, no. The problems that existed in the post-exilic community exist here. The problems that were in their hearts exist in our hearts. One of these dangers that, that, that it seems to like transcend culture and time is that our hearts can be captured by other things. They can be captured by other things. I can be tricked, in a sense, into loving and worshiping other things besides the Lord. You see, ultimately, my heart, in, for, for, in one way, grows cold to God because I'm enamored by something else. By something else. So here and now, in our culture, you are constantly bombarded with information, different kinds, opposing narratives, numerous sources, all of them distracting, and regularly competing for your attention, competing for your loves, your affections, the things that drive you. You are in constant assault. And under, uh, under pressure of being captured, of your affection being captured by something else, that will in turn cause your love for the Lord to wane. It will cause your heart to grow cold. So for the sake of time, let's think about one of those distractions here in our culture. Just one. Materialism. Now, I, I would suggest to you that what materialism does from a basic level is it locks your attention on the things of this world locks onto them. Now that could look like the pursuit of wealth, stuff, like actual material, and that, and that can certainly be, be a problem. But more broadly, materialism forces you to focus on the things that you can see, that you can see, which, as, which, which actually throttles or even strangles your ability to understand and relate to the Lord because you can't see Him. It's a downstream effect of materialism to not to struggle to understand how do I actually engage with the Lord? You see, it, it, it can be tricky because very few, maybe no, no one sitting here would embrace the type of materialism that, that would deny the outright existence of God. But still, the effects of that idea or that philosophy bleed into our thinking and, and, and bleed into our practice, like what actually I, what I actually do in my life bleeds into that. So, 
If you find yourself, even now or maybe in the past, or maybe often thinking like, I don't, I don't ever think about God or the things of God unless I'm coming to church. Or maybe even then. Or if you find yourself just feeling like, why do I, why do, I do some of this stuff? Maybe going through the motions. Or your heart feels cold to God and the things of God. When you think about the kingdom of God and, that, and, and, and how it's coming and invading the world, you just kind of go, huh, that's neat. Stuff like that. How do, we, how do we account for that? What's that about? Well, one of the things that's happening here is that I, my heart gets captured by this cultural philosophical idea of materialism, and I don't, I don't understand and I don't connect with things I can't see. So if you find yourself there, what should you do? God tells us in verse 7, he says, return to me. He says, return to me. You see, as sharp as Malachi's critique is, it doesn't mean that somehow God is done with his people, and it doesn't mean that he's somehow done with you. No. This passage gives us great insight into what is motivating God's critique in the book of Malachi. That you, that his people, that we would return to him. That we would return to him. He is calling his wayward, fickle, faithless people back to him. God is unbelievably patient. He is always ready, always ready for you to turn to him. Think about the parable of the two sons in Luke 15. Luke 15, the younger son has open contempt for his father. He says, Dad, I want my inheritance and I want to get out of here. And he takes off and he blows all his money. And what does the father do? He gives it to him. He gives it to him. He takes off. And then the father waits. He waits. He's patient. He's hopeful that his son will return. And, and when he finally does, what does he do? Does he look down the road and say, man, I told you so? Did he shame him? Did he do anything like that at all? No, he ran to him. He ran to him. One, one commentator points out that this is the only instance in the Bible where God is depicted as running. And the father in Luke 15 is, is a God character. He, he's an image of God. The father's patient. Jesus tells us that parable 400 and some odd change years after Malachi writes this in chapter 3, which, which illustrates the point that God doesn't change because they're saying the same thing. The same thing. So I don't know. I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what your heart is like as it relates to the Lord. But what God says to you is, return to me. Say, well, God, well, my, my sin is strangling me and I don't, and I kind of actually have this weird thing where I like that and I don't understand. God says, return to me. But God, like, I'm probably going to, like, do that again. Like, I'm probably going to trade you for this sin again. And he says, return to me. Return to me. He said, but I don't deserve that, God. I've treated you, like, so poorly. And what does he say? He says, return to me. Return to me. Don't miss this connection between Malachi 3 and Luke 15 because it illustrates that God doesn't change. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means that God is patient with you in your life. His love accounts for your struggles. It accounts for your weakness, your unbelief. It accounts for the reality that your heart gets captured by other things. You don't think God knows that. Of course he does. That's why he came. That's why he says, return to me now in his word. So turn to him. So turn to him. Press in. Ask the Lord. Like you could pray something like, Lord, I want to turn to you. I want to return to you. Help me. Help me. Like sometimes in your life, I don't, I mean, I feel like this quite a bit, where I don't even know how to pray anything else besides, Lord, help me. Help me. That's what, he, that's, what he wants. that's what he wants. He's saying return. He's saying ask for help. He's saying, I am your father. I love you. I want to put the ring on your finger and the robe on your back. I want to welcome you back in. So don't blow by that. Think about what Malachi is saying here, that God doesn't change. And even when you read the Bible and look at these instances where God is gracious with people, understand that when you find examples in the Scripture of God and Jesus being gracious to His people or individuals, that's what He's like toward you. That's what He's like toward you. You think about Matthew 9 as an example. Matthew 9 says that Jesus saw the crowd and that he saw that they were helpless and that they were harassed and that he had compassion for them. Jesus sees you in your life being helpless and harassed and he has passion for you, compassion for you. So much so that that caused him to come into the world and give up his life so that you might live. It's amazing. Like you think about the follow through. Like I have compassion for a lot of things, ideas, um, um, causes and people and very little follow through <laughs> like if I'm being honest but Jesus has a different kind of compassion thank God that he's not like me he has compassion on you and he follows through knowing exactly what that follow through is death for him life for you it's amazing it's amazing it's great news it is great news that his compassion for you causes him to say, turn to me and live. Turn to me and live. But at this point in the series, I hope you're not surprised by what comes next because the people show the hardness of their heart that they don't understand what God is talking about in, in the following verses. So this brings me to the second point I want you to see this evening, God's generosity. We'll pick it up in verse 8. He says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithe, tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, conceptually, it might be difficult for you to even, like, even consider what it would mean for you to rob God. Again, it's, it seems like one of those things where, like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't it's not like I can walk up to God and like hold him up and steal his wallet. That's not the idea here. Rather, we have to understand how the Bible contextualizes money, possessions, material things, and their connection to the heart. So first, the Bible presents a context where God owns everything. Everything. 
The psalmist says this in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The world belongs to God. Everything is his. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said it this way, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. So if that's true, when we rob God, when we withhold what is already his, it's already his. Old Testament scholar J.A. Thompson um, has articulated the, the, the purpose of the tithe. Like, what's the tithe about? Thompson says this. An annual tithe of the produce of the land was to be made to Yahweh in recognition of the fact that he was both the owner of the land and the one who bestows life and fertility. So the point of the tithe was to practice the reality that God owns everything. That's the point. It was an acknowledgement of the people's faith and trust in the Lord as the owner and the provider. Like if God owns everything, everything, and he's given you the things in your life, what is that? It's evidence of his generosity. Like he didn't have to do that. He's not obligated. He doesn't owe you anything. Rather, he gives to you because he's generous. God is so generous. The tithe is a liturgy. It's a practice or a rhythm that helps us remember and then live in light of the generosity of God. It also focuses us focuses us to have greater faith and trust in God as the provider. Second, we see a connection between how you spend your money, how you use that, and the heart. The heart. Now, in Malachi, the people's failure to tithe shows that they don't trust God. They didn't trust him to provide for him. They didn't, maybe didn't think that he actually owned everything they were going to provide for themselves. So they stole or hoarded the things that God had given them. Now, the same principle um, is true now. The way that you manage and use your finances shines a spotlight on your heart. Now, this is, one of the, um, this is one of the ways that you can actually tell, like point at evidence to say, hey, do I trust the Lord? How do you manage your money? What does the checkbook say? Like anybody still has a checkbook. But what it, Rich Richard has a checkbook. Thank you, Richard. The point is that the connection is strong. The way I manage my money is a, gives great insight into what I think about God. Do I trust him that he's going to provide for me? God highlights this point in Malachi 3. Look, look at me. Look at verse 10 with me. He says this, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for your blessing until there is no need. Then jump down to 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God is pressing here on the connection between faith. Do you trust the Lord and your money? How you use that? 
You see, this is one of the actual points in the Christian life that challenges the materialism that we talked about in our culture. For example, every year when we sit down to get our tax stuff together, we get our statement from our giving statement from Mercy View, and every single year we have the same conversation. Man, that's a lot of money. And not that, you know, it's that much, but it's it's a significant amount of money. And we can always, the conversation goes, but we could use that for a lot of things. Like, I kind of want to buy a camper. Yep, could do that. Maybe save for the boys. Maybe save for groceries because we have three boys. I mean, we could do all kinds of things with that money. But the point is, the point is, in the tithe, in giving graciously and generously, what God is doing is inviting you, he's inviting me to trust him. To trust him. To trust him. Like, it's better in the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, to have less money and be obedient to him than have more money and be disobedient to him. This is one of the ways where the kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom run hard and headlong into the values of our culture. It's like almost opposite of what's, what's going on. It's better to have less money and be obedient than more and disobedient. God is inviting you to trust him. So we believe here that the tithe in the Old Testament is a little different than for us in the New Covenant. One of the things that the New Testament seems to do is flesh out the idea that the way we use or manage our finances shines a light on what our hearts are. Are like In Luke 11, for example, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for giving out of a wrong heart. Or in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us that giving to support the mission of God, local churches, church planting, missionaries, ought to be generous, like you should give more than less, because it gives opportunity to trust the Lord. Freely given, not because you feel guilty or manipulated, but because it's a joy to worship the Lord in this way. And cheerful. Cheerful, giving happily and rejoicing in what God has done. In other words, when you give, and in particular like this, like you are actually worshiping the Lord. He is glorified when that happens. It's also a wonderful example of how the lordship of Jesus actually sits in the Christian life. Like there, there, there's not anything in the Bible that would suggest that Jesus is Lord of like half of you or a quarter, or three quarters, or 90%. No, no, he is Lord over all. It's back to the Kuiper quote. There's not one square inch over which the Lord does not declare to be mine. It's a wonderful illustration of that. Like, what does the Lordship of Jesus mean? Well, it means that everything in my life is submitted to him. Not because he's like this dictator who wants to beat me down, but because obedience to him leads to life and joy and flourishing. That's why. So when we talk about money, giving, and the Bible, this is an excellent text, Malachi 3, where God invites his people to trust him. Like, let's go back and read it again. It's almost like God is like, hey, trust me. Or maybe even more sarcastic, kind of like, uh, or painting a picture of like, hey, put me to the test. Watch what I'm going to do. Do you trust me? Watch. As a more broad point, 
The tithe invites us to see that God has organized or ordered the world in such a way that obedience to him leads to flourishing. You say, but that, it doesn't make sense to my materialism to have less money. Well, I, I know. That's why we've got to get rid of that. We've got to get underneath it and remember that the kingdom is not, not the same as the world. What he's done in his word, like you ever asked yourself, like, why are there commands in the scripture? Like, what's the Ten Commandments? Or even more so, why are there commands in the New Testament if we're under grace? It's because they all lead to life and flourishing. Because God as your Father knows what's best for for you and for us. It's like me as a father, like, I don't let my kids play with the hot stove. Like one of them, Asa, who's two, can reach up and turn on the gas burners. This is a bad thing because what he'll do is he'll turn it on, he'll stick his hand in the burner. He's only done that like four or five times. It's like, come on, man, like get with the program. But what, what, I don't let him do that or I do my best to stop him. It's not like, like hey, man, you want to burn your hand today? No. We set up things and, bur- and, and barriers and actually physical like things that get in his way from sticking his hand on the stove. In a cosmic way, God has ordered his world so that you, you will flourish when you listen and obey him. Now, the truth is, um, like uh, the rich young man in Mark 10, if you choose to obey God, you will have less treasure here. But the point is that you'll have God, who is a greater treasure. That's the point. Now, in fairness, sometimes my own heart, like I respond to this invitation to give uh, with skepticism, with doubt. Like, why should I trust him? Why should I trust him? Now, the answer begins here in Malachi, back in verse 6. What did he say? The Lord does not change. He doesn't change. So you think about this. The patience he showed with Jacob, with his people in the Bible, is the same for you. As you struggle, as you sin, God is patient with you. The heart of the father in Luke 15, running to his wayward son, is the same heart that he has for you. So it's in that kind of context he invites He invites you to trust him in all kinds of different facets of your life, including how you manage your money, how you give. He stands ready, like Malachi 3.10 says, he stands ready to demonstrate to you his generosity. Like he needs to. I mean, he's already given you Jesus as the only provision that could meet your deepest problem, sin and separation from him. God, because he is so generous sent Jesus to to, to bridge that divide for you. He's so generous that he willingly gave up his son, his beloved son, to bring you from death to life, to change you from an orphan to an heir, to adopt you into his family. He's like, how does that have to do anything with the patience of God and with the generosity of God and and giving? It has everything to do with it because it's, it's, it's who we trust it's, 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 it's the one who, who, who has ordered the world and who has commanded us to obey. We have to look at him like, is he worthy of that? And the answer in the scripture is yes. Look at what he's done. And then here in Malachi, he doesn't change. He doesn't change. So if he's already given you Jesus, he already gave up his son, 
what would he give you that has, is like lesser? It's a lesser thing. What would he not give you? What would he keep from you? In other words, if you obey him on, on, on the point of, of, of giving back to him as evidence of worship, like you think he's stingy when he's already given you his son? No. No. In other words, friends, as we, as we think about the patience of God, as we think about the generosity of God as it relates to giving, as it relates to financial management. Listen, you can trust him in this area and every other area in your life because of what he's done. And then also with the understanding that he's commanded all of these things because he knows that they lead to life, they lead to your joy, and they lead to your flourishing. Your flourishing. Let's pray together.